Welcome to St. Dominic's Weekly. This is Father Michael. So delighted you could join us today as we complete our lecture series on faith and new atheism. This particular week, we dive deeply into the masters of suspicion. Picking up from last week, looking at Karl Marx, we delve into Freud, we look at Nietzsche, and then a little Sartre as well, a little French nihilism as the case may be. Then we go into more deeply the issue of evil, how evil is a problem for those who would posit God's existence and how we might wrestle with that and understand. And then finally conclude by examining what sorts of attitudes are helpful in terms of dialoguing with folks who don't believe in God or at least are perhaps agnostic towards God's existence. So whether you're on the go or taking it slow, many blessings as you enjoy today's show. So welcome back to our uh, final installment uh, of uh, Faith and Atheism. Uh, tonight we're going to cover, hopefully uh, pick up with some of the classic uh, forms of, of atheism and to take then questions uh, that you have, especially not neglecting uh, the quote-unquote problem of evil or how we uh, face the question of evil and the existence of God. We begin then with, uh, as we have been, with um, some of the, we're calling the masters of suspicion. Last time we began with Marx, and in fact, we had had a question, I had a question at the end of last time's uh, lecture about the role of Descartes, uh, René Descartes, who was the first, uh, if you will, to kind of have a turn to what's called a turn to the self, that is, to organize and to approach reality not from the observable reality. Remember Thomas Aquinas and before him the Greek philosophy saw that we could argue from effects back to a cause, taking, if you will, reality uh, for granted in terms of our own estimation. Descartes begins from within, and so he has the very famous line, I think, therefore I am. And so it's this turn to self, and we do see this played out, although I must say that Descartes is, believes in God. In fact, he, if you will, almost quote-unquote uses God as a bridge between uh, the world and ourselves in terms of what gives the fundamental uh, truth or, or, or factuality to the world. So it's, I think, therefore I am. And it does remind me of a story I actually heard of Descartes uh, as he uh, one time walks into a, a bar and the bartender says, can I get you a gin and tonic? And he says, I think not, and disappears. <laughs> so, you didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> So the same Buddhist walks into a bar, and he looks at the bartender and says, make me one with everything. We're off to a good start tonight. All right. <laughs> so we're going to begin with uh, Freud tonight, um, basically the turn of uh, the 20th century in the 1900s, the father of psychoanalysis uh, and one of the most important figures in modern psychology, but he was also as much an amateur philosopher as a clinical psychologist in his own right. Underlying amateur, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes good, sometimes yeah. not so good. Famous for a number of theories, including perhaps ones we've heard of, the Oedipal Complex, the Unconscious, uh, Freudian Slips, the theory of ego, superego, and the id. And of course, we all know what a Freudian slip is, right? Where you, you say one thing and you mean your mother. Okay, so <laughs> I'm on a roll tonight. This is our last chance. I got to get them all in tonight. So there were there were others in in the uh, shopping cart that we had, but we wanted to keep this PG. So yeah, that's true. 
Freud considered religion to be a very sophisticated psychological defense mechanism, one with roots in historical past linked to real historical events and intertwined with these uh, Oedipal father figures that he gets from mythology and other uh, kind of looking at the structures of the mind. So he sees it basically, uh, religion as a kind of psychological um, malady, if you will, even. Like Marx, Freud was a good deal more interested in the function that religion played, in this case in our psychological life and health, rather than, in, in Marx's case, an economic system. And so he sidesteps any real truth claims of religion themselves, or even, if you will, looking at, if you will, um, philosophical reasons, or not reasons for the existence of God, but to look at historical and psychological origins, including exploring deeper motives for people holding religious beliefs. So he doesn't ask, is there a God? He goes, why do people think there is a God? And is it helpful to think there is a God? So a kind of functional deism or atheism, if you will, as um, writ large in, if you will, structures of the mind or how human beings think. And his conclusion on evidence, uh, uh, or at least uh, analyzing the structures of the mind and how we think is that religion does fulfill a number of psychological needs. It's a kind of psychological crutch. And in this way, it's useful, but it can distort reality to prevent deeper psychological integration. In other words, it's kind of a delusion, not always a hurtful delusion. He said it could be helpful in case, but ultimately one that if we want to get to the real heart of things, uh, needed to be uh, transcended from or, or pushed aside in that, in that way. Now, Freud makes a big distinction. Of, he does a lot of hand-waving around the distinction between illusion versus delusion. So illusions are relatively harmless. Um, they aren't psychologically, um, they're not really psychologically important and they don't diverge from reality in an important way. It's just you're covering up something in a more superficial way. Delusion is when you're really disconnecting with reality and there is at least the potential for harm. So he makes a big deal of the distinction and uh, he definitely puts... Uh, particularly as he goes through his career, religion definitely gets put in the delusion category. It's worse um, and worse. He won't deny that we all need our psychological illusions, and that can even be kind of your, your, your ticket to a relatively, relatively unhappy life. Um, he is a little bit pessimistic about happy that, how happy we can be. But um, delusion is always going to be on a, on a deeper level, and religion is definitely part of that. So what do we say to this? What do we say to the idea that if religion has, and the idea of God has a kind of psychological origin to it, perhaps? Well, if you take Father Justin's Logic 101, you'll come across what's called the genetic uh, fallacy. And uh, Freud's thought is open to uh, many criticisms, but the, the uh, and including Oedipal complex, feminine hysteria, his different theories of the unconscious, but in terms of philosophical points, you have to distinguish between how an idea historically arises or what's the origin of it, where it comes from, and the idea itself. Huh? And there is perhaps psychological motives or historical circumstances that can surround an idea in the context of the idea and can kind of even be confusing uh, to a real estimation of what is being said. For me, the classic example here, we have um, Aristotle in the midst of uh, the Islamic faith, the Muslims. So uh, just quick historical uh, context for this, and it is important and, and we'll kind of come around full circle, is that for many years the Greek philosophy of Aristotle was not really known in the West. So Feast of St. Augustine today, happy Feast of St. Augustine, he built a lot of his theological 
um, uh, theory and, and reflection upon the uh, philosophical underpinnings of Plato. So he is in many ways, uh, he takes from, borrows from Platonist kind of theories. Uh, well, what happened in, as you go through, Aristotle is kind of lost, but it's rediscovered, and it's rediscovered in places which are primarily Muslim. And so you have all these Muslims discovering, if you will, the kind of works of Aristotle, and then they, become, they come to, to the West. And initially, the Western um, mentality towards these works of Aristotle, because they're being translated by, and there's all sorts of commentaries around, is a distrust. Why? Because you have Muslims who are in possession of them and, and promoting them, and so they're going Thomas Aquinas himself looks at that and says, we've got to be careful of what you might call the genetic fallacy here. In other words, don't get so caught up in the messenger <laughs> that you don't fail to just estimate or take seriously the message itself. And so he actually takes in a lot of Aristotle and shows that it's not necessarily to be interpreted along um, some of those early Islamic commentators, but if you will, sees how it is can be uh, consonant with our own faith and reason. And because of that, it gives Aristotle a hearing that if it wasn't, if you will, uh, articulated from the source would have been lost to the West. We would have lost a true resource in that way. One of the most egregious examples of the genetic fallacy, at least in the writings of Freud, is one of his very last works. It's entitled Moses and Monotheism. I don't know if any of you have picked it up. Uh, it's a pretty outrageous. Uh, historically, it's been completely debunked. But he spends a whole lot of time, Freud, uh, trying to connect uh, specifically the Jewish religion uh, with its rise in Egypt and basically as a kind of modification of uh, Egypt, the Egyptian faith. So it's uh, a little bit of historical revisionism, but it's Freud's way of saying, no, no, Moses didn't come up with anything original. He just kind of, you know, historical circumstances made him kind of tweak the Egyptian faith, and that's what Judaism is today. Um, and you can see kind of F Freud's um, argumentative strategy here is that it really isn't a direct, you know, Judaism is untrue. Um, and of course, of course, this is a, a an issue that was particularly uh, significant and poignant for him since he was Jewish. Uh, but we're going to discredit the whole thing by explaining that, you know, it never really happened, um, you know, with any kind of special revelation of miracles. It's just kind of a, an Egyptology that's been worked over by uh, someone who was very smart, and his name was Moses. Exactly, yeah, so. borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> The, the other thing to keep in mind is in the genetic fallacy is not just the kind of the messenger sort of, you know, disbelieve the message because of the messenger, but also uh, the idea that, if you will, ulterior motives or motivations, uh, in fact, will undercut the argument. For, an, for example, just because you are raised Catholic doesn't mean the Catholic faith is not true. And so it's like, oh, you were just raised Catholic, that's easy for you. Likewise, right, because you're in the West, you're, oh, you're just because you have that kind of mentality. That works both ways, right? So when uh, folks like Dawkins say, well, you know, there have been real no hardcore atheists, you know, back in the day because atheism wasn't uh, generally um, uh, continenced, you know, you would be in trouble for doing that. Well, that cuts both ways. You can basically say, well, those who are atheists are atheists because they had parents or an upbringing that disbelieved God because you went to university where a lot of university professors railed against God. And so your formative years were formed by people who precisely didn't believe in God. So in other words, that kind of fallacy can work either way, right? You can, you can e easily as argue that our, our mind want, you know, wants to invent an, a, a God as 
is there's a kind of prejudice for those who don't have gone for that to pass along uh, as well. And so in terms of examining connections between psychological, economic, or power structures and therefore disproving functionally the idea of God uh, in a suspicious way um, are kind of tantamount. We'll see this in all the quote-unquote masters of suspicion. They, they look and see the economic, the power structures, the moral. We get to, to Nietzsche uh, and Freud and say that God doesn't exist and there are these um, ways of, if you will, reducing the existence of God and to uh, just our mind or the economic system and so forth. And so if you've ever heard of the phrase hermeneutics of suspicion, it's one of those phrases that's kind of bandied about, like, you know, speak truth to power, it's a catchphrase. Hermeneutics of suspicion is very popular. Um, this would characterize kind of the hermeneutics of suspicion approach is, again, it's not a direct assault on the truth of your beliefs, but someone say to you, well, you believe that because of X, Y, or Z. And this, of course, this happens all the time in political debates, right? It's, you know, you, are, you only hold the political position you do because, you know, you have a particular background or a particular race or a particular gender. <clears throat> and let me, at this, flowing from this, make a little plug for uh, this book called Faith of the Fatherless. It got me thinking about um, a professor that I had when I was in Washington, D.C., studying with Dominicans, a class uh, with, uh, at the time, the John Paul the Second Institute of Marriage and Family, a, a professor named uh, Paul Witz that has done a lot of um, work in um, psychology, psychoanalysis, and looking from a, definitely from a Catholic perspective. And his, in class, he kept saying, get the data. He was all into like, do the research. Like, we've had enough kind of opining and things. Go out and do a study on it, right? So he was, he was actually uh, very solicitous to get even governmental organizations to give money to run studies on marriage and family and so forth. And he released a book by Ignatius talking about how dysfunctional family relationships can contribute to atheistic outlook. And he does the numbers, like he does the numbers. Like it's not just here, here are some theories I have. He actually says, what are the stats look like? Right, and he's, he really wants to be measured in that. I do, I, I do remember the class was interesting because I think I was the only, it was, a, it was a class of like 30 or 40 of us, and I was the only guy in the class. It was all, all, these, all these ladies in the class. So yeah, it was just no Dominicans. I was happened to be the only one in the class. So uh, it was kind of it was a, a fun dynamic. But the, um, the idea, and it makes sense if we consider one of the most important analogies for understanding God's love is human fatherhood. We call God Father. And that same summer, as I was taking this class, I was also doing volunteer ministry at an inner city uh, home for uh, after school program for um, uh, kids that were having difficulty in in their studies. Washington D.C. at the time and probably still is has the highest illiteracy rate in the country. So down the street from where you know you have, if you will, the hopefully good political minds and a lot of intellectual foment in terms of you know I mean the, if if you know the president of the United States has a sentence regardless of who it is, is kind of a focal point of, of governance. You have in the place of governance for the first world also the um, greatest amount of violence in the country, the greatest amount of ill formation, the public schools are a wreck and so forth. And so I walked into this class and I'm, I'm basically trying to teach these uh, young, mostly African-American boys to try to read. They're, they're, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and they, can, they can't really read. You're trying to inspire them and, and, other, and other things. And I, I, at one point, it was, it was a public, uh, you know, school kind of thing. But of course, I'm dressed like this. Everyone wants to know what these beads are, things. I took the occasion to talk about God, so I don't know. <laughs> no, no, one, no, no one's going to kick me out. <laughs> and so I said, I just thought, oh, I'll do the basics. I'll just tell them the story and just tell them the basic prayer. We all know the Our Father. And so I just began, I thought, wait, hold on. 
and I, as I usually want to do, I want to get their input, and I say, you know, I was going to say, God is like our Father, and I said, like, for example, you know, how many of you have, know your fathers, like, you think of your fathers, no one raised their hand, like, one or two, like, in this class of 40, no one knew who, even knew who their father was, and I think, gosh, how, how, <laughs> how can I, die? so, well, who knows, who do you know, grandma was the number one answer, so he said, God the Father is like, Grandma, right? <laughs> At least that was the first starting point. You work from that, right? You try to work from that. But, but in other words, you have to even look at how our own sense of a culture and family dynamic is playing into this. And so that's a, once again, the, the, the Freudian turn towards analysis of this, of this is, is not necessarily ill-found, but it works both ways, and we can certainly see it. So a little bit of uh, counter-suspicion. We're talking about the masters of suspicion. This is an example of counter-suspicion if we can suggest that believers only accept the existence of God because of their psychology. We can certainly suggest the reverse. And of course, neither of them truly argue to the point itself, but suspicion can bo work both ways. And I think especially around marriage and family, there's lots of work to be done there. End of parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm sure that you've heard this aspect of Freud's thought too, and this is always a really interesting part of the course that I offer at DSPT that includes Freud is this uh, very interesting theory that he has of the ego, superego, and id. And it does take him a little while to develop it, so this is not something that he has fully packaged early on, but it, it develops. But you know, by the time that he's in the middle to, to late part of his career, he has this fully developed. So there are three aspects to our psyche. The ego, which is um, our conscious self. It's that part of us which actually faces reality. So he says it really is a matter of the reality principle if we're talking about the ego. Um, and when it comes to reality, the most important aspects of our uh, experience, or at least that Freud emphasizes, are pleasure and pain and the, the traumas that come from that. So when we have extreme pleasure or extreme pain, and of course the emphasis is really on extreme pain, that can often cause us trauma in terms of how we uh, remember that or retain that. And if the trauma is too great, of course, then there's a repression issue which pushes uh, those memories into the subconscious. So uh, in our little diagram here, everything below the waterline is actually unconscious or pre-conscious. Now the difference between pre-conscious and unconscious in Freud tends to be pre-conscious is something that can actually bubble up to the surface again, and so repressed memories can certainly do that uh, to a limited extent. Um, the unconscious is uh, essentially unconscious in principle, that you really can't access it. So it's going to be there, um, but it's only going to uh, come out and you have to do some sleuthing to really find out what's going on, but you're never going to actually be able to experience that. Uh, uh, unconscious part of you. It's just there, and um, you have to kind of infer that it's, it exists uh, you know, somewhere beneath your conscious life. Um, the ego also contains, of course, these things that are they're both conscious and therefore not strictly, un and then not strictly conscious either, or pre-conscious, and all of these things influence our emotions and behavior. Now, where it gets really interesting is you have these two other principles, the id and the superego. And the popular rendering of this theory tends to uh, go somewhere along the lines of, okay, you're the ego, and the id is on this shoulder, and it looks like a what? Devil. A devil, right? The id is the bad. And then on this uh, shoulder is the superego, and that looks like? 
And this is not at all Freud's theory. <laughs> um, now, it's understandable that this would be more or less the popular rendering of it because the id is uh, basically that which represents kind of our basic drives, our basic instinctual urges, um, which um, Freud basically characterizes as eros. So it's, it's the pleasure principle. Later on, especially after he experiences a lot of the horrors of World War I, uh, he will come back and actually say there's a kind of death drive that we have. Um, and anyone who's had a teenager probably can appreciate the fact that Freud added this kind of caveat, this addition to his original theory, because we do have this kind of urge to danger, um, which tends to be just a little bit self-destructive. So that's kind of our self-destructive impulse. But the id basically comprises these instinctual desires, which aren't um, usually um, conscious, but certainly manifest themselves in behavior, and therefore we can tell they're there. And again, it's not that they're evil, uh, but certainly the id can cause us problems. And um, certainly these drives can be repressed by the ego for various reasons, um, usually because the superego is saying that's bad. Um, but sometimes because we have to deal with reality and the id doesn't necessarily... Um, uh, our instinctual desires that are part of our id don't necessarily help us out with the reality of our situation. So the ego can suppress the id uh, in a number of different cases, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And again, the id is in itself not an evil thing because there are instinctual desires and drives that we have, and those are, especially in Freudian thinking, rather natural to us. Um, and in fact, uh, Freud will problematize this, this uh, kind of process where we repress the drives. So sometimes it's actually the other principle, the superego, which causes us even more problems and might be considered evil in some respects. Um, yes, Freud, uh, on the advice of his peers, revised his concept of the superego with x-ray vision and faster than a speeding locomotive. You have some very confused chickens. Um, the other is, of course, the superego, which is supposed to be our moral compass, and it is, but it's with a twist. And this is why it isn't um, an unqualifiedly good thing in Freud. While it embodies our ideals and our aspirations and our moral standards and is closely tied to the voice of conscience, it is always not always good for us. Sometimes the superego urges us towards goals or behaviors that don't make us perfectly healthy and perhaps aren't completely realistic. So it can give us an ideal of what we should be that's completely unattainable and that actually drives us to be a little bit, um, and here the, uh, I use the clinical term, nuts. <laughs> so while the superego uh, super does have some resemblance to the classical conception of conscience, for Freud it's more like an internalized parent. And if our parent had unrealistic or harmful expectations of us, our superego is also likely to be a bit harmful. Especially if you remember that Freud uh, essentially posits a conflictual relationship between us and our parents, right? So our, uh, our young men supposed to have warm, loving relationships with their fathers according to Freudian psychology. Not naturally, anyway, not, not at the beginning. There is a, a inevitable natural Oedipal stage where you experience your parent as a, a, an opponent, right, an enemy, someone to at least compete with, if not a full-blown um, full nemesis. And um, we won't get into mother problems because that raises a whole other uh, 
realm of problems. So the superego is an internalized parent and it has all the problems that that uh, parental relationship can have in reality, except now it's on the inside of you and it's bossing you around and perhaps um, terrorizing you and ruining your life. But perhaps it's not doing that. Perhaps it's doing good things. It's uh, ambiguous. I always thought it was just an extra thick toaster waffle. That was a, oh, that's something <laughs> like, well, that's ego. Super no, ego. ego. Oh, never mind, never mind. It's really good with extra syrup. <laughs> <laughs> your mother never read to you and your father never hugged you that's why you drink from the toilet says the psychoanalyst to the puppy <laughs> um, so uh, it is I think a common under misunderstanding of psychoanalysis um, and this is because Freud's uh, pupils and the way that psychological practice has evolved uh, has, uh, is a bit different from Freud's original conception but Psychoanalysis, according to Freud, was the procedure by which the psychotherapist gains insight into what's going on into the patient's unconscious. And it does this, uh, the psychoanalyst does this in various ways, through dream analysis, because your dreams end up revealing what's going on with you in a way that you don't consciously apprehend, but reveals more about you than you consciously experience. Free association does the same thing. So the reason that Freud had his patients lie down and get comfortable on the couch, and he would actually be behind them, is so that they would basically just chat away. And their kind of completely chattering would reveal connections to the psychoanalyst that the patient, uh, him or herself, would not be aware of. And again, reveal something of the unconscious. And then finally, uh, Freudian slips. Freudian slips um, are not necessarily about one's mother. <laughs> but they do, uh, through this kind of uh, verbal mistake, uh, reveal something of what's going on behind the scenes, again, and your psyche and are supposed to be revealing. Um, this is supposed to allow the psychoanalyst a kind of insight into what's going on with you and lead you step by step to reintegration. Now, here's the misunderstanding. This doesn't lead to happiness. So if you um, are going to a psychoanalyst uh, of the Freudian school, there is no expectation that they're going to uh, lead you back to a kind of mental wholeness that's going to make you a happy, joyful individual. Psychoanalysis, Freud was fond of saying, could only lead people from neurotic misery to um, back to ordinary human unhappiness. He was <laughs> not an optimist. <laughs> and again, we could psychoanalyze Freud himself and say, why is that? Maybe, <laughs> what was your relationship with your father like, Mr. Freud? He didn't get those thick waffles. <laughs> <laughs> he, needed, he needed to be read to in more hugs. That's right. <laughs> one of his late works, not his last work, uh, but his, one of his late works is entitled Civilization and Its Discontents. And uh, in this book... Uh, Freud does take some rather large swings at religion, so it's a very interesting work uh, in that way. But he actually considers religion part of many aspects of civilization, which basically are in conflict with our basic instinctual drives. So uh, in order to live well and get along with your neighbors, you have to repress and forego some of those wonderful um, satisfactions of life that might otherwise be opening to, open to you, like... Um, you know, having everything that you want, taking revenge, um, 
sowing your oats, etc. Um, you have to be well-behaved, and you can't uh, alienate people because that tends to destroy the social fabric of things. So um, uh, Freud is not uh, denigrating civilization so much as pointing out, he thinks, an essential conflict. And that essential conflict, again, is part of what he thinks is the essential unhappiness of people. Civilization is going to make you um, a proper, dignified human being, but it's also going to make you essentially unhappy. So this is from Civilization and its Discontents. One feels inclined to say that the intention that man should be happy is not included in the plan of, quote, creation. And again, religion is useful since it helps to mediate this tension by fostering ideals that keep our fundamental urges in check. So again, you could consider it a kind of mass hysteria or delusion, but potentially a useful one and very much um, plugged into the role of the superego, right? Religion functions as a kind of neurotic parent. But it's ultimately in conflict with reality and is a delusion. It can end up leading to lots of mental unhealthiness um, on a societal, if not individual, level. Ooh, now we get to Friedrich. So this flows right into uh, a look at uh, Friedrich uh, Nietzsche, who and was... It really does. Freud and Nietzsche have an awful lot in common. Yeah. No, it's true. And then because where we just looking at Freud saying that religion kind of keeps us in check but is the fundamental root of unhappiness, Nietzsche, bottom line, is throw that whole construct off, right, of, of evil. So um, professor of, of classics turned philosopher, not well known in his own time, which is interesting. Folks, I think, at least recognize the name and, they, and the, the Superman, and as we'll talk about, some of key theories that had him in his own day not recognized, uh, but was, has become one of the most famous and influential thinkers of the 19th century. He was uh, the son of a Lutheran minister, <clears throat> but he, because of that perhaps even, uh, has a particular animus towards Christianity, which he identifies as the morality of weaklings and a kind of mythology of herd mentality. This is his image of the herd, like uh, taking from um, uh, Christ talking about the sheep, right? Talking about the sheep and flock. And so he's, if Christ identifies as a sheep, he doubles down on that image to say that we're just dumb like sheep, um, anyone who would be a believer. <clears throat> he sees Christian religious practice and ethics as a way of standing in the way of, the, of, way of life and flourishing and a real obstacle to the full expression of inherent powers and instincts. It is talking about Egypt earlier and Moses uh, kind of taking Egyptian theology and kind of rewarming it and articulating it as Freud had. Nietzsche, when he's young, actually travels uh, to Egypt and actually gets quite sick, a kind of disease when he swims in the, the large river that is there uh, and comes back with a bad case of nihilism. I don't tell, he, I know he's just going to edit these if I tell him beforehand, so they're new to him, too. <laughs> I think he, I telegraphed that one, didn't I? You saw that one coming. All right, so a <laughs> key question that gets into the her hermeneutic of <laughs> Nietzsche. Uh, um, uh, um, and you see the little Kermit the Frog going to his x-ray technician, and the x-ray shows that uh, there's a human hand inside of Kermit, uh, you know, manipulating him, and he says, have a seat, Kermit. What I'm about to tell you might come as a big shock. <laughs> He's being manipulated. So here's, here's, here's Nietzsche on uh, the genealogy of morals. So he's talking about kind of the moral life. 
He says, and he's great at these rhetorical questions. He's just a master of this kind of rhetoric. Um, Under what conditions did man devise the value judgments good and evil? Have they hitherto hindered or furthered human prosperity? Are they a sign of distress, of impoverishment, of the denigration of life? Or is there revealed in them, on the contrary, the plenitude, force, and will of life, its courage, certainty, and future? What is the value of our values? Do our values better human life? And that all depends what you mean by life. Nietzsche never fully answers the question except to suggest almost a medical definition, and that is physical vigor or the ability to assert ourselves, or as he puts it, the exercise, our will to power. So he looks at these categories, good and evil, value judgments, and they say, are they helpful, are they hurt? Just as Freud kind of sees them and sees them as being helpful maybe societally, but not basically keeping our, our, uh, our superego, keeping things in check, leads to a kind of malaise, a kind of unhappiness. Nietzsche says, well, behind that lies something more fundamental, just the will to power, the will to do things, even at a physical level, right? Yeah, notice that in both of them, the instinctual drives that we have um, are very, are identified as very important in both their thinking. Now, Freud's a little bit ambiguous because if you ask Freud, you know, what is the true self, um, Freud's not going to be able to give you a definite answer because it's kind of split across these, you know, it, it, ego, superego. And the superego is probably easier to eliminate, but the ego and the it are going to have to fight it out in terms of what's your personal center because, of course, the ego is consciousness, and that's important, but the it is also really important because that's your instinctual drives. It's a little bit clearer in Nietzsche that the consciousness part is takes a back seat to being able to assert our will to power, to get that fulfillment of our instinctual drives. And we still have that lingering in our societal definition of what's your true self. So people will, will have this kind of idea that if you are um, being polite, but you really think that, that people are kind of lousy, you just don't say anything about that. Um, the characterization of that's going to be, well, you're putting on a kind of mask, and your polite self is not the true you. The self that's saying, grr, I don't like that person, is actually the true you on the inside. Now, what's the problem with that particular analysis? Well, when it comes to personal choices, um, we've actually chosen to be polite, right? So isn't that as much you or more than you're grumbling on the inside and saying, I don't like this person? Notice there is a kind of bias in that kind of way of thinking, which is very common in our society, that somehow your inner feelings, emotions, and what you want is the real you. And the choices that you make to be kind and humble and good are not the real you. Yeah, no, that's the, all the ad. You do you, right, is the big ad for... <laughs> sure. And, and even, even yeah. some very, um, uh, what seem very innocent phrases like follow your bliss can have this kind of dark side if they're not seriously qualified. Sure. So following your bliss can also mean that you roll right over other people um, and somehow that's supposed to be okay because it's the real you. Most authentic, yeah. The way that... Uh, this is put by Nietzsche in his first published work is The Birth of tra- uh, Tragedy. He takes these kind of mythical uh, aspects and kind of does a little analysis of like a Greek tragedy between Apol- uh, um, Apollonian and Dionysian uh, kinds of frameworks. So Apollo, you know, the gods, and that en- encompasses what's beautiful, true, rational light, but ultimately illusory. Whereas on the other hand, the Dionysian, the kind of warlike and um, 
um, striving is the world of pleasure, instinct, violence, destruction, and even death. And Nietzsche holds that the Dionysian is more fundamental, answering to the actual existence of things as they exist. So uh, very loosely, but it's kind of the id superego dynamic put at mythological level. And when we embrace the Dionysian, we actually affirm life by accepting chaos and conflict, which is part of the reality. So the, the kind of uh, frustration that's going on, that little chatter in the background, oh, this person is really getting on me, is the true self. And the self that's, if you will, repressing or keeping back, or as we put in the Christian ethic, be, being patient with, which is a virtue, right, <laughs> is actually less of who you are than that little in the background, I wish I could just say a, a nasty thing or, or walk out or do something which would not be, right? <laughs> Um, so living in the Avalonian is comforting, and we can kind of get along, and it makes for nice, pleasant social mores, but it's ultimately fleeting, uh, you know, kind of existence, and leads to a kind of, I think, the, that Freudian unhappiness and malaise, because it's a, if, you, if you see life like that. Yeah, a again, a, a, a darker um, image of what life is really about. And so you can understand, and we're, we're, we're getting right to this, but when it comes to critique of Christianity, yeah when it comes to a kind of ethics that uh, really revolves around love and compassion, um, you can imagine that if you think the world is a dark, dog-eat-dog -dog kind of place, um, yeah, and, the and whole idea of... Yeah, it's, it's, it's striking. In fact, just to go right to the, 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 the quote, this quote is very striking. Rather than we thought, rather than say what he, what he said, just quote him because this is astonishing for us. This is Nietzsche. The sick represent the greatest danger for the healthy. It is not the strongest, but the weakest who spell disaster for the strong. Is this known? What is to be feared? What has a more calamitous effect than any other calamity is that man should inspire not profound fear, but profound nausea. Also, not great fear, but great pity. Pity is the worst right here, right? The sicker man's greatest danger, not evil, not the beast of prey, quote unquote. Those who are failures from the start, the downtrodden, crushed, it is they, the weakest, who must undermine life among men, who call into question and poison the most dangerously of our trust in life in man and of ourselves. So he's saying, and it's not those who are evil, or were, it's those who are weak those who are to be pitied, those are, that's the greatest obstacle to happiness. Now, now, why is this? Well, remember how Dawkins really loves natural selection? Natural selection and evolution are in the air at this point, and there's something of a tang of it in Nietzsche's approach, too. So what happens when your particular species isn't allowed to cultivate the strongest, but instead spends energy coddling the weak. The whole species goes down in flames, right? Can't be the fittest unless you're out there fighting, right? You're, you're out there surviving and, and, and struggling. Um, in a way, our ethics of pity and compassion are exactly what is working against us and, and uh, eventually are just going to make us mediocre, less than human kind of beings. Yeah, no, survival of the fittest is your primary, if you will, philosophy for life, not as a theory of evolution or of, of um, biology, but as a moral principle, the survival of the fittest, you're going to see the weakest as taking the place of evil. Real evil, if you will, will be weakness. Yeah. So when little Oliver comes up to you and asks for more, 
more, sir. <laughs> you say, no, slap, sit down. Exactly. <laughs> Which is sad, but also leads to a great musical number. <laughs> food, glorious food. <laughs> <laughs> the Hospital and University, and this is David Bentley Hart, who we're going to recommend. We'll have a little uh, bi bibliography at the end. Even pagan critics of the church were very aware of the astonishing reign of Christians' exertions on behalf of others. Ultimately, one finds nothing in pagan society remotely comparable in magnitude to Christian willingness to provide continuously for persons in need, male and female, young and old, free and bound alike. Christian teaching from the first placed charity at the center of the spiritual life as no pagan cult had ever done before and raised the care of widows, orphans, the sick, the imprisoned, the poor to the level of highest religious obligations. So you can see where Nietzsche is coming against if he's, if he's, if he's seen this particularly, uh, this kind of, if you will, charitable work towards those impoverished as being, if you will, a synonym for what's worst in society, he's going to have a kind of animus against this. Death of God. Let's see. I, I think the death of God. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see that Nietzsche actually has actually a very good understanding of Christianity. He actually is one of the most astute critics of, Christ of Christianity, not because he's not, not because he's correct, but because he, he does manage to, I think, land on what is most central to Christianity. Now, we should find his critique, I think, very disturbing because it basically says, um, it basically negates our fundamental Christian values, which um, not only are ours, but largely accepted by the Western world. Um, the Death of God is one of the uh, most famous passages. It's actually not entitled The Death of God. Um, and he does talk about the death of God in many different places, but the most, one of the most famous and memorable and earliest is uh, a little aphorism uh, from uh, his uh, middle work, The Gay Science, um, uh, or The Joyful Science would be another way of translating that. Um, and here's how it goes. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear to be worthy of it? Now this is, I had to uh, severely abbreviate this particular passage because there's a whole kind of setup and it's actually a, a page and a half long. But he basically has a lantern in his hand, and he has entered the marketplace. And it's the reason that the lantern, which is lit, is so remarkable is it's the middle of the day. Uh, notice he's a madman. So Nietzsche is already setting something up, namely that he's saying something that's off kilter. And he's talking to people who do not believe in God. So the very fact that he's talking about that they have killed God makes them laugh and mock him. So it's a very interesting, very rich, um, multi-level kind of passage. And I think it illustrates very well the fact that Nietzsche is quite brilliant, even though it's a brilliance that is perhaps misdirected. In fact, uh, it's, a, it's a common belief that he's one of the, the three greatest prose stylists in the German tradition, the first being Martin Luther and the second being Goethe. So uh, Martin Luther was essentially the origin of the modern German language with his translation of the Bible. Um, so he is, he is high up. He is a wonderful stylist, a really great writer. He's great, great fun to read. And this passage is, is a lot of fun in particular. 
but it's putting forward something that is often missed. So it's very easy to read this talk about the death of God is um, uh, Nietzsche simply saying God doesn't exist. Not true. Uh, of course, Nietzsche doesn't think God exists, but that's not really the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that the idea of God, which has been so important for the world, has now been overturned. And notice it's not the madman that's solely responsible for that, right? So it's not Nietzsche saying, I've killed God. He's basically said, God has been killed by us, the Western world. He's talking to his 19th century contemporaries, which who, who were, by and large, quite atheistic. But his criticism is this, and I think it's a very insightful one. His criticism is that we still haven't come to terms with what a rejection of the Christian values that go along with our idea of God means for us. What's going to be our value system now? What's going to be the meaning of our existence now if it's no longer God? Your casual atheist does not ask nor answer this question. And Nietzsche, I, and again, this is why I think he's so worth reading, is he is not a casual atheist. He's a very serious atheist. So he's not going to bring back God and, make, make, and say, oops, we've, we've gone the wrong way. But he is going to say, we have to seriously think about where we go next. And his ultimate answer is, we don't really know exactly where we're going to go next, but it's going to be a radically different kind of existence. We can't underestimate what it is that we've done. We've murdered God, and we have to now become gods ourselves simply to be worthy of it. Pretty neat and powerful stuff, even if it's also disturbing. Now, what Nietzsche is saying, at least one of the aspects of what Nietzsche is saying in this passage, has not been simply captured by Nietzsche. It's been captured by good Christian theologians across the board. They call it cut flower ethics. In other words, there's a whole bunch of things that we take ethically for granted that spring from our Christian culture, from our Christian beliefs. Not only from the way that we've used reason in dialogue with our Christian beliefs, but actually in revealed truths as well. We've used all of that, and we've come up with a value system. And now that value system does not have those philosophical, theological roots that gave rise to it. We've basically snipped the flower and we're now walking around with this ethics. And what happens when a flower doesn't have its roots? It dies, right? <laughs> so in a way, it's unsustainable. And this is really Nietzsche's point, too, is that we have a whole system of values that we now know, know, don't know what to do with it. It's now a mystery as to where we'll go and where we'll get all values next. And so one of the things that Nietzsche is actually accused of is, is being a nihilist um, it's not exactly true. Um, he doesn't give us uh, an answer as to what our value system will turn out to be once we've gotten rid of God. But what he is actually most concerned about is not um, succumbing to nihilism. In other words, he's looking for a foundation for the meaning of existence that is not God. And he is most afraid of the idea that we won't have that foundation at all that will simply have no value to, value to our existence, that will have no real uh, ethics anymore because we have um, gotten rid of the only foundation for ethics that we know of. And he's a great critic of those who kind of rest on, if you will, the, the 
late blossom of the flower, even if it's cut off from its roots, who still try to pretend that there can be a Christian ethic without the roots of Christian ethics. Um, and so he, he, that's why the, the whole idea of um, talk, naming the weak as being akin to evil is so important for, for those who would, I forget, we've been talking about Dawkins. Remember Dawkins was trying to say there can be a kind of morality that's just based on rational goodness, quote unquote, that you don't have to believe in God for this. Nietzsche would be totally eviscerate that kind of idea. He would say there's that you're basically on a kind of false uh, Christian moorings to make that claim. You're assuming what Western civilization has done to kind of get away with it, a cheating. Because he, he, there's no foundation there. Not that Nietzsche himself was grasping for that, but he would be a great critic for to, towards those kind of That's theories. Right. He, he, he would want to reaffirm that there is an important uh, connection to ethics and religion and Dawkins is eager to, of course, sever that connection so that we can be ethical, wonderful, quasi-Christian people without the horrible burden of Christianity. Uh, <laughs> the Eternal Return. So Calvin and Hobbes, I suppose the secret of happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Of course, you're supposed to be at school, says Hobbes. I couldn't appreciate those moments. <laughs> <laughs> So this is actually a wonderful illustration of what Nietzsche's getting at when he posits the eternal return. So cosmology in Nietzsche's day had a kind of finite universe uh, spatially in terms of what actually exists at any given time, but something that was maybe potentially temporally infinite. And Nietzsche capitalizes on this potential cosmology and says, well, gosh, if we had infinite time and just a finite number of things in the world, what is going to happen? Eventually, we're going to come back to the same configuration over and over again. There's going to be kind of cycle where history and time completely repeat themselves. And it's a kind of thought experiment for Nietzsche. If that was the case, would you be able to say that you loved your life, that you affirmed your existence so much as to be happy with that scenario? Or would you say, my god, I never want to live this life again? And here we can see that uh, um, Nietzsche is really doing various thought experiments to try to find ways to um, grasp at what it means to affirm our own existence once we are bereft of fundamental Christian concepts. So we can't live without values. Nietzsche understood this. Overcoming our system, current system of morality, absolutely essential to identify a new basis for morality, something that was life-affirming. But what does life-affirming mean? Nietzsche used this thought experiment to ask what would it mean to rejoice in living each moment of our lives over and over and over again. Now, I have to admit that there are lots and lots and lots of aspects of my life that I would live over and over again, but I'm not sure I want to do that with every moment. Mm -hmm. So perhaps I don't affirm my existence the way Nietzsche would want me to. And then, of course, one of the uh, most famous concepts that we have from Nietzsche is the Superman or the Ubermensch. And the idea, again, is that, um, gosh, if we uh, develop our own set of values and really um, no longer burdened by God, really are able to release our full human potential, what could we become? Well, maybe anything we want, including a kind of new species. So the Ubermensch is com almost completely unspecified by Nietzsche. Nietzsche doesn't tell us what that looks like or what that would mean. And um, he actually talks about this in kind of mythopoetic language in his obscure and poetic Also sprach Zarathustra, or Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, 
it's really just foreshadowing the possibilities of what human beings free of the burden of the conception of God might, um, what their existence might actually be like. Zarathustra is a prophet, by the way. He is not himself the Superman. And then finally, I wanted to say just a little something about Nietzsche's relationship with the Nazis. So um, there's really no way in which we can say that Nietzsche was a Nazi because he died prior to, well, he died in 1900. Um, so it would be, at the very least, anachronistic. But even to accuse him of being a kind of proto-Nazi wouldn't be entirely correct either because he actually despised anti-Semites. So, for instance, um, his brother-in-law, um, Bernhard Furster, uh, married his sister Elizabeth, and he didn't get along with Nietzsche at all because he was such a rabid, rabid anti-Semite, and Nietzsche was completely turned off by that. And it wasn't just this gentleman. Um, he also broke with Wagner and a few other people over this uh, issue of, um, of uh, the evaluation of Judaism. Nietzsche actually disliked Christianity a lot more than Judaism. So uh, whether you could accuse him of being a Nazi, I think, is uh, really murky at best. But there's little doubt that the Nazis found in his philosophy uh, a very convenient ideology and that uh, misreading him and misapplying him, perhaps, they were able to use him to great effect. We would say, though, that there's something congenial in Nietzsche's very dark philosophical worldview that perhaps, and this whole idea of might makes right, uh, that's kind of lurking there in Nietzsche that might uh, have attracted um, Nietzsche to his Nazi adherence. Um, here is uh, a picture of Nietzsche with his sister Elizabeth. His sister liked to take pictures of him even after he became insane and was institutionalized and was essentially um, catatonic for the last 10 years of his life. So he, he died a very uh, strange and sad death. And one wonders if compassion and pity wouldn't have risen on his list of important values with that experience of suffering. Okay, so last atheist, kind of bonus atheist, um, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's so French and he's so pessimistic and he's so French. Uh, I just wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to say a few things about him because he's, he's so fun and he's, he's actually a very good philosopher in many ways, um, even though, again, he is an atheist. He only died in 1980. Um, and he's known for, you know, writing in French cafes and being, um, you know, subject to nausea and ennui. And um, he was actually a, a really... Um, probably the closest thing we get to a Renaissance man in the 20th century. He was a philosopher, psychologist, social critic, political theorist. Um, he did, unfortunately, think a little bit too highly of um, uh, specifically uh, Soviet communism. And he was a playwright, although his plays are maybe philosophically but less literarily compelling. I actually went to a performance of No Exit, and um, it really did feel that way. <laughs> uh, Sartre's existentialism is explored in being and nothingness this is his magnum opus and it is huge um, he composed it shortly after reading Heidegger's Being in Time which is what he was doing when he was a prisoner of war in a German concentration camp in France after being captured by the Germans in the, um, the invasion of Paris in 1940 so he spent a couple years as a prisoner of the Germans. Don't we all just want to just read Heidegger and write our own existentialist manifesto? Isn't that what you do when you're a prisoner of war? 
anyway, so, <laughs> but, you know, it didn't turn out to be, uh, it was actually a, a fairly successful, but it wasn't necessarily accessible to many people. So he uh, uh, tried to boil his philosophy of existentialism down into um, a less nuanced essay entitled Existentialism as Humanism. And this is the version of Sartre that most people get. Um, it's not quite as nuanced, and so some people have a tendency to misinterpret him. And here I'm going to give you the five-cent, 30-second uh, version. Like our masters of suspicion, Sartre is more interested in exploring the consequences of a thoroughgoing atheism. And for him, because God doesn't exist, we have a kind of radical responsibility for determining the meaning of our own existence, which he encapsulates, and encapsulates in a phrase, um, existence precedes essence. That is, because there's no God or creator, there's no predetermined, prefabricated human nature. So uh, Sartre's thought is this, is that if you have a maker, um, you basically are made and you have a kind of pre-existing essence in the mind of your maker, right, the artist that crafted you, that you have to live up to, right? So pretend like you're a stapler or you're a hammer. You just have to um, be a hammer or be a stapler according to the, the, the tool maker that made you. But we're getting rid of the existence of the tool maker here. So we're now responsible for determining the meaning of our own being. There's no predetermined right answer to what our existence is all about or specifically what actions are right or wrong. So we have to determine the meaning of our own life and um, what is right or wrong for us is basically determined by what we actually do. In other words, we start living before we really know who we are going to become through our choices. It's all about choices for Sartre. So Sartre's really about practical freedom. Here's a quote from Sartre. Man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. We are condemned to be free. And Sartre is not blasé about this. He's not casual about this. He really does think that existence is a burden which is one of the reasons why existence has a, a certain element of absurdity to it. Um, we're condemned to be free. We can't escape that freedom no matter hard we tr how hard we try. So if I go to Father Michael Hurley and say, Father Michael, please make all the decisions in my life for me for the rest of my existence. Have I really given up my freedom? For Sartre, no, because what have I just done? I have chosen. <laughs> to give my freedom over to Father Michael. So I have made a choice about my life. There's no scenario in which I can not not choose. So I can't escape. Now, I can escape in the sense of I can um, anesthetize myself, I can amuse myself, I can ignore the fact that I have this kind of radical freedom. But when it comes down to it, I have to make these choices about my life, and I have to decide what it means. Now, Sartre, uh, I think, has some great points here. And if you remember that old quote that four walls do not a prison make, we do know that we can decide within limits what things mean to us and what we're going to make our life about. So I do think that Sartre has some good intuitions. But I think it's a bit of an overstatement to say that there is no human nature and that we don't have a kind of divine destiny. Um, even if we don't, if, even if we take the divine destiny off the table because we are like Sartre atheistic, we still have a lot of essential attributes that we can't deny about ourselves just by having been born. 
having five senses, having language, being able to form universal concepts, the desire that we all have, which is virtually innate in everybody. I've never met anybody who didn't, didn't desire to be loved and love, to know and to be known. Um, these are all parts of being human. And so to say that we have no human nature at all and that we're completely free to determine ourselves, that we're nothing but what we make of ourselves, I think is a dramatic overstatement of the kind of freedom that we have. It also, I think, uh, neglects the fact that there has to be a kind of determinate context in which we're able to exercise our human freedom or else our human freedom becomes uh, meaningless. So pretend like you have no destination and you could go anywhere. How are you going to choose? You have to have some reason to go one direction rather than another. Now, if you have no reason, if you get rid of all those reasons and you make it completely free without any determination whatsoever, you have no reason to go north uh, versus south, east versus west, you're never going to go anywhere. You're going to be stopped at that crossroads forever. You can't even exercise your freedom unless there's enough determination and enough reason to make the decision that you're going to make. In other words, the kind of indeterminacy that uh, Sartre is looking for just doesn't exist. In the classical view, freedom was always a function of applying our universally held desire and goal, which was happiness. Remember, happiness is off the table for Freud and Nietzsche, Sartre too, uh, to the particular circumstances of our life. So we know we're, we want to be happy. Then we look around and say, what will make us happy? And hopefully part of that equation, an important part of that equation for us as Catholic Christians is God, right? Uh, but it's not simply us making it all up. We do make choices, but the fundamental goal is already predetermined for us. Oh, freedom of indifference reminds me of one of my favorite stories about uh, Sartre. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Brace yourselves, people. <laughs> no, no, this is one of his, he was writing uh, Being in Nothingness, and he's at one of those little French cafes kind of on the sidewalk. He's with a good friend, and he, uh, the waitress comes around to take an order, and he says, oh, no, just, just cafe, black, right, black coffee, and... I'm not even going to attempt a French accent here, but he's just, you know, just coffee. But coffee, but, but, but no cream. And the waitress says, well, we don't have any cream, but we could do it with no milk. Freedom <laughs> 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 of indifference. Um, <laughs> uh, Father Pinker is a Dominican, uh, has contrasted these two different conceptions of freedom as he styles them freedom of indifference, the... the, the ultimate uh, options versus freedom for excellence. So freedom, if taken in itself, and of course we pride ourselves here in the United States of saying freedom is, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, right? It includes the ability to make choices among different things, actions, or alternative. But if it's solely simply about making choices, then we actually miss what freedom is for. And so our contemporary obsession with self-determination with the ability to choose, keeping all of our options open, if you will, actually distorts a true understanding of freedom, confusing it with just license or ability. You know what the classic definition of freedom is? This is St. Augustine, whose feast day we celebrate. Freedom is the ability to choose the good. Freedom is not having nine million choices, necessarily. It's always reliably choosing something that's going to be good and ultimately make us happy. That's what true freedom lies in. And so to make a more and more of an intimate part of our lives to choose a good, the freedom is not from something. 
freedom from limitations, but a freedom for choosing the good again and again and again. We have the power to choose evil or only apparent goods, and that ultimately, as we can understand, is not freeing, especially when it comes, this is, I think, self-evident when it comes to choosing things that are bad for our health, even if it's a despite our own will, addictions and other bad habits, right? Are we truly free there? Even though we're making a choice, we've, we're stuck in a rut, right? We wouldn't call that truly a freeing uh, exercise or a, a freeing way of living. Um, so freedom for excellence is freedom for things. So we've got classic little yo-yo ma there. When our freedom is exercised correctly, when we choose actions in keeping with human dignity, was authentically good, and then our freedom grows. Freedom is not static capacity to choose, but the dynamic ability to orient our lives, especially towards the good. Pure freedom, that is a kind of freedom of indifference, therefore completely free in the sense of availability to choose, with respect to options, is a conceptual fiction. The more we choose the good, the more we are magnetized to it, and the same is true, unfortunately, of evil, through habits, good and bad. Choosing what is truly good becomes easier, more pleasant, that we develop what's called virtue in the choice of a, a kind of good second nature. And this, they've done studies with this, even with, uh, uh, with our uh, interaction with uh, consuming goods. So they did, they did a, the, this was at a marketplace, and they actually found, they can tell because wherever you're your cell phone, they can track what you're doing and how long you stay in an aisle and so forth. They track these, this data. They found out, this is one, I forget which supermarket or store it was, that people were getting stuck on the, um, the aisle with toothpaste for long periods of time and like diminishing shopping. And what was the reason? They had too many different brands. And so what did they do? They actually limited the number of brands <laughs> and then they actually got more business coming through there. People were being more decisive. And that was also triggered with, uh, I think they did some kind of poll with if someone bought a toothpaste, how happy they were with the decision. And actually fewer choices led to being happier with the result, right? And you read other things about um, you know, they, they, this whole uh, movement of, of, uh, for restaurants of limiting the menu. There's actually a direct proportion to having limited menu items and overall satisfaction of your meal, right? <laughs> you get a menu that has 19 pages and you're like, just tell me what the specials are, right? You know, just give me orientation. This is like our And choices. this is why in the Priory, I've limited our breakfast options. I, There's I, gruel or gruel. I, I, <laughs> and don't think we haven't noticed. <laughs> you do need some choices. <laughs> so exercising freedom is, is not just between choosing two roads in the wood, even if it's more or less traveled, with <laughs> deference to Robert Ross, but more like learning a foreign language, mastering a sport, playing a musical instrument, becoming an artist or scholar. There's certainly rules to be followed, but the freedom is exercising and engaging in whatever subject matter is. Choose, making that choice as a raw ability can lead either way, can either way, and it's ultimately not satisfying. So there's this kind of serpentine logic, if you will, it goes back all the way to the, to the Garden of Eden. The old atheists we've looked at have in common the view that God is an obstacle to the full flourishing of humanity, either from our mind, from our economic orientation, or uh, even from our morals. And so if we could just remove God, we would be the human beings we are created to be. And if it sounds familiar, that's exactly what the serpent says in the story of Genesis, right? If you ju God is keeping something from you. The prohibition to eat the uh, uh, fruit from the tree of good and evil is really a ploy by God to keep you from being God, right? So it says God is taking this away from you because you will, eyes will be open, you'll be like, God himself, knowing good and evil, you will be like God. So that temptation certainly goes all the way back to the very beginnings of 
the articulation of what would be Judaism or a, a revealed uh, a revealed nature of who God is. So the negation that underlines positive humanism, Marx, Marxist humanism, Nietzschean humanism is not so much atheism, but in the strict sense of the word, anti-theism, right? Great as the contrast is between them, their common foundation is the rejection of God, is matched by a certain similarity in the results, which is the annihilation of the human person. So God keeps us from being fully human. And de Lubach has a, has a very incisive quote to this. He says, it is not true, as is sometimes said, that man cannot organize the world without God. We have reason, right? We could maybe get that. But what is true is that without God, he can ultimately organize it only against man. Exclusive humanism is inhuman humanism, right? The, the, the greatness and, the, and the, the depravity of man, to quote Pascal. Yeah, so de Lubach, what, what de Lubach's point to here is that uh, the, the gulag, the concentration camp, the gas chamber, is not an accident of history. It's not an accident that you have these regimes that are trying to get rid of God resorting to these sorts of things. Ball on the cross. Oh, so another plug for G.K. Chesterton, who's one of my favorites. Um, he has a, a fun little story, came out in two versions, one uh, kind of the original and the other expanded version, uh, called The Ball on the Cross. And um, it, The Ball on the Cross basically refers to the, the sphere of the dome and the cross on top of it. Um, it chronicles an ongoing duel, and here's a little illustration of it by an artist named Ben Hatke, um, between a passionate atheist named Turnbull, who is a Scot, very appropriate because a lot of atheism came out of Scotland in the 18th and 19th centuries, and a passionate Catholic named Evan McKeon. Um, and they basically are determined to have this duel, you know, and vindicate who's right based on, you know, who's going to win the duel. And no one will let them have the duel. So they soon become allies on the run from the law because no one wants them to have this duel. And they're united against a common enemy, the rest of the world. And here's G.K. Chesterton's philosophical point behind his very fun literary work is um, atheists and theists have something in common if they're both zealous and heartfelt. That is, they truly think that the question of God is worth asking. It's, uh, in fact, the only question worth asking. Now, unfortunately, I want to make sure that I'm not taking away uh, Father Michael's thunder here. Um, unfortunately, we not don't. Not possible. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Be, being as you are I the god that. of light. I got, uh, <laughs> I got thunder. <laughs> Now, when it comes to atheism, sad but true, we're not going to actually encounter a whole lot of avowed atheists. I think our job would actually be easier if we did. So if we encountered Nietzsche and Marx and Freud, I think we'd have a, a richer and more interesting conversation with them. The fact of the matter is that um, we're going to, your average atheist is actually going to be a practical atheist, which we could also, um, uh, rather than use the, the term practical atheism, we could just call indifferentism. That is, um, they don't believe in God, but not in any kind of self-reflective or serious kind of way. They just really haven't necessarily grappled with the question of the existence, or they're too busy pursuing their worldly goals or, you know, um, logging onto Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. <laughs> so the truth of religion isn't even important to them. And so this might actually, I think, be char uh, characterize a greater spiritual danger for our time is actually to get people to recognize that these religious questions are actually important in the first place. 
It's actually the indifference rather than a passionate rejection of, um, of Christianity, Christ, or religion in general that I think we have to contend with. And, and just to say a word about that, right, I, as part of this uh, lecture series, I was looking at some of um, recent YouTube videos that are coming out, and there's this uh, debate between Sam Harris, one of, who's actually evolved in his thinking about new atheism. He's actually gone away from the Hitchens-Dawkins model and debating with um, Jordan Peterson, whom you may know. And, and so there, it's very interesting. Peterson is not, I mean, he, he doesn't even like the idea, the question, uh, do you believe in God's existence? Because he, he says, well, what does believe mean? What does God mean in terms of your own? But he talks about basically functional theism in terms of how do I act? I act as if there is a God, right? So he comes on that side. Sam Harris comes on in the other side. But it's a good example of the, it's kind of a modern day ball and cross. It's, they're not, neither position is coming from a classic Catholic position, but they're basically trying to wrestle with the idea of God's existence and its importance. And so just that in itself is, a breath of fresh air, where two very, I think, interesting uh, and knowledgeable folks are actually wrestling with that idea, and Sam Harris is actually, we'll, we'll see, I, he's actually made some interesting uh, evolution in his own thought in the last 10 years. Uh, but it's a good ex another good example of, of, of that. Of that and I think having a good debate is always a good sign for someone's intellectual and moral health, yeah. is that, you know, you are engaged, you at least care enough about the question to have a discussion. Um, what you have to worry about is, you know, for instance, your teenager who just says whatever and then walks away. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we have a lot of we have a lot of people. That's going to be the initial few encounters that we have with them. Nice five minutes for evil. Can we do it? I think we can. All right. Because I'm more optimistic than Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx put together. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, okay, so we've had a lot of questions about the problem of evil, and so we're just going to return to that a little bit and expand on what we've only hinted at in the, the, the first uh, one or two sessions. Um, now, again, the idea that uh, evil presents a kind of problem for God's existence, why would a good God allow evil to exist in the world, that uh, has been labeled the problem of theodicy. Um, and if you'll remember, it's actually one of the two uh, objections to the existence of God that Aquinas actually includes in his article on the proofs of the existence in the Summa. So Aquinas thinks it's a pressing problem, unlike Dawkins. Um, so let's begin with talking about what evil is in its essence, and that will allow us to talk more about what then the relationship between God and evil is. Evil in general. So uh, one of the most famous accounts of evil in general comes from St. Augustine. It's not entirely original, but he put it in, I think, its most powerful and memorable form, at least up until that point. Um, he actually started out as a dualist. And a dualist, remember, basically says there's evil principle in the world and there's a good principle in the world. And neither has a real advantage over the other. So you can think of yin and yang. Um, kind of two equal principles that work against each other and there's kind of conflict and strife and uh, there's no particularly good reason to think that good will have the upper hand or evil will win the day. Now St. Augustine realized that this was not a good approach to the reality of evil. It actually misunderstood uh, evil as something that could be uh, thought of as independently existing, a kind of positive reality to itself. It's not. Rather, it's a privation or a lack of a due good. Evil is parasitic. It's a deficiency, an imperfection, the result of something missing, which should be present in the kind of thing in which it inheres. So, so natural evil is actually a great example of this, is 
Um, we can think of a missing limb or deformity or bad health or blindness. All of these should be things that are part of some, you know, something and for whatever reason they're lacking. So think of a plant, for instance, might be the subject of natural evil. It's dry or wilted or nearly dead. That's not how a plant should be. That's not a good, healthy plant, right? That's a bad plant. That's a plant that's undergoing natural evil. Now privation, again, is a lack of a do-good so it's not any kind of absence whatsoever. So the fact, for instance, that you walk by a big rock and it doesn't have eyes, that is not evil because eyes don't belong to the rock in the first place. In fact, that would be really creepy, right? A rock with eyes. So, <laughs> so for instance, the fact that you don't have wings and we can't fly around, that's not evil either because it's not a privation. It's not something that human beings have, right? We're talking about the lack of a do-good privation. So privation is something that something should have normally because that's the kind of thing it has and for whatever reason it doesn't. So, and we can, if we think of that as simply in terms of natural qualities, that's what we call natural evil. Now, on this level, there's not yet any kind of moral judgment. We wouldn't blame, for instance, the dying plant for its condition. We would, if anything, blame the person who's supposed to water it. Um, natural evil doesn't translate into moral evil. They're too different things, although they have a common structure. So we we're not talking about moral judgments. The moral aspect doesn't arise until we start talking about moral agents, that is, rational creatures who have intellect and will and who can be responsible for their own decisions. Rational agents like Father Michael. So the dog on this far side is pointing and saying, a cat killer, is that the face of a cat killer? Cat chaser, maybe, but hey, who isn't? Anyway, so <laughs> when it comes to looking at moral evil versus natural evil, moral evil is, can only be committed by moral agents, the human beings, and evil arises when there is a lack. Once again, evil is not something, it's a kind of nothingness. So by definition, it can't, doesn't necessarily have a direct cause, it's, and so is why sin is kind of ultimately a mystery in and of itself. There's a gap there, there's a lack there. And in terms of our own human agency, when we look at an action, there are um, definite stages or analysis of any action, the object, the intended end, and the, uh, the act itself. So to like, sum this up, in any action there's what you do, there's why you do it, and there's how you do it, right? In any one of those things, the what, the why, or the how could have a lack in it. And to whatever extent there's a lack in there, it's not going to be a measure up to what it ought to be. Um, and so like many philosophers after him, Aquinas does not believe we can evaluate the goodness or badness of human actions just by looking at the what, the why, and the how. You have to take it all together. And so this is a complex kind of thing. Um, you have to aim at a good object for the right reason, results in good consequences and done in the right manner. So getting it right is not necessarily easy. Um, and acting for a good object is more vital than the circumstances, but the circumstances can factor in. And ultimately, in the adjudication of anything evil, the, the, the key to hold on to is that moral evil is not something. It's a lack of something that should be there. It's a qualified kind of nothing. Like the shadow, right? It's often given the shadow that, that, that's cast from the light. The shadow knows. The shadow knows. So if the, the very existence of moral evil is God responsible, God as that first cause of all things, and he's omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful and he knows all things, and he's all good, how could evil exist? And is God responsible for it? With regard to natural evil, certainly God is responsible for it. It's how he set up, 
it's how we set up <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the world. <laughs> God is creator of the physical order. He allows for individual organisms or entire species to be affected from our perspective for the good of the whole. Natural evil, at least in our worldview, is a necessity of the product of harmony, order, and so can be caused by God, and there's nothing moral particularly about it. It's, if you will, the way the universe is set up. But when you're talking about moral evil, since there's no necessity for moral evil, God, we might say, and it's the misuse of our freedom, God, we say, might permit it. So this is where I can, does God cause evil? Well, if you mean permit evil, then yes, God is the cause of evil. But does God, if you will, directly intend evil? Well, no, because God, there's no lack in God. God is the fullness of all goodness. And so the, from a philosophical, philosophical and theological vantage point, God, what the one thing God does do is he permits evil, but he can bring about, we think, a greater good from any particular evil. Our insight into that is completely obfuscated, though. We can't get God's perspective on this. So we can't know the specifics or the extent of this greater good, and we know that it includes human beings who can know and love God and one another, and also that love allows for us, the permits at least, and it makes allowance for choosing poorly or choosing a lack of something, choosing not to love, but to hate the absence of love in that way. And so the two things to say perhaps from this, does God allow, does, is God the cause of moral evil? Only insofar as he allows love to exist, because he permits it, right? And he does it for a greater good that we don't have access to. But when others say, well, that's a definitive argument against it, just because you, you know, if you can't explain it, then therefore you're kind of presupposing what you want to prove. My answer to that is it works both ways, right? If God doesn't exist, why even call it evil, right? It wouldn't be evil. You would have to, why is there good in the world, right? Equally as much uh, tough for an atheist to say than, than for, for, uh, for a theist to talk about evil. So in other words, you have to, you have to see that, or you have to show how evil in, in, in a sense is a lack. It's not a positive of something. It's a lack of something, and God can bring something greater out of it is the kind of the short answer. Resources. Do we want to do resources really quick? No, I'm going to cruise right through. Cruise resources. resources. All right. Cruise through resources. Sorry. Um, do email the office and get a copy of the slides if you want to see some of the books that we think are really worth reading. Um, I'm actually, are Dominicans in yeah. Alaska? Um, That's Father Steve, for those who know Father Steve. <laughs> so, uh, again, I think part of the challenge in our society is um, it's a little bit of a moving target. It's gotten harder. Atheism was more respectable, and atheism is less um, something that people dwell on in just kind of a presupposition. They just don't care very much. So preaching the gospel has become all the more difficult. I think one of the things that we could say, though, is you know, if we're looking for revolution, if you actually look at the facts of history, the true revolution is Christianity. Um, Jesus is the original revolutionary, and this is the way David Bentley Hart puts it. The new religion brought with it the possibility of a new civilization continuous with, but more vital than its classical pagan predecessor. Christianity produced a unique synthesis of Hellenic and Jewish genius. It gave the course of human history a meaning and a design. Its great epic narrative of fallen redemption, sin and sanctification, divine incarnation, and human glorification provided the human imagination with a new universe in which to wander, expand, and flourish and it infused the culture it inherited with a far profounder, far richer, far more terrible moral consciousness than had ever existed under the rule of the old gods. I think that's a pretty, pretty powerful endorsement of the kind of change in thinking and the positive 
effect on human existence that uh, Christianity has been. And here, of course, I'm talking not simply about religion, because this is Dawkins' um, target religion in general, but Christianity is specific. Hinduism, Buddhism, and Aztec sacrifice are going to have to find their own apologist. Uh, the myth of neutrality. So one thing I think it's important for us to keep in mind um, as we uh, dialogue with atheists is sometimes we're led to believe that we're only being fair if we take our faith out of it and allow the dialogical space to be completely neutral. This is a myth. There is no intellectual Switzerland. Atheism or agnosticism is not a neutral position. It's a very particular position on the existence of God and the truth of revelation. So we ought not, for the sake of politeness, to assume that it's true. We can, for the sake of trying to um, convince our interlocutor that it's true, but that's only because we're meeting them where they are. If we're really trying to have an honest discussion, we're going to go ahead and say, this is what I believe, and it's equal and uh, it's certainly equal in value to what you do. There is no neutral space. We have to pick a position. And we're just going to have to risk being countercultural. So we're going to have to say things that are perhaps no longer accepted as largely being true. Um, this shouldn't trouble us too much because, again, we're revolutionaries. And if our ultimate purpose is not only to live but to share our faith, uh, we need to be intentional, uh, still respectful, but intentional about that public expression. So let's not shy away from it just because atheism is... Um, fashionable at this particular moment in time. And then I'll just say a quick word on uh, the, the, the very idea of being judgmental. So anytime you make a very strong claim to the truth, someone's going to say, who do, you, who do you think you are that you have the right to say these things? You're being judgy. You're being judgy. And that is the cardinal sin right now, is to be judgy. Now, this has actually pushed us in some fairly um, absurd directions. So there is a wonderful video, you c I'll have to think of the actual reference, I've saved it in my favorites, because I show it to my students in my ethics course every year. But uh, specific teachings of the church uh, make truth claims, and um, that's going to make people uncomfortable because people want to believe what they want to believe, even if it doesn't necessarily fit the facts. And even the, the phrase facts has become problematic, right? There are facts, there are alternative facts, there are fake facts. But we have trouble for the sake of courteousness and letting people believe what they want to believe, even pointing out the obvious, much less something that's a little bit less obvious like God's existence and having an honest conversation. And so that's something that I think we have to come to terms with. So there was the Family Policy Institute of Washington actually went around the University of Washington campus and interviewed a number of students and asked them simple questions. So the interviewer basically says, what would you say if and keeping in mind the interviewer was a white male of average height, uh, what would you say if I told you that I was a six foot four inch black woman? And you actually had a number of students say, well, I would say, you know, it's, you, sure, you can think that. That's, that's your right. Um, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's fine. <laughs> and of course, the interviewer is like, really? <laughs> and then <laughs> there was one student, I love this student because she's, She's obviously struggling here because there's, there's conflicting values on her plate. But she basically says, okay, so yeah, you want to be a woman. Okay, you want to be African-American. Okay. Uh, you are not six foot four. <laughs> 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 
So that was, that was where her common sense just totally gave up and said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to let you say that. Um, this is kind of the position that we've been pushed into, is that we want to be so very understanding, we want to be respectful of people's feelings and their alternative beliefs that we can't even have an honest conversation about what is right before our face. And so we're going to have to be comfor comfortable doing that. And that's part of the dynamic of our dialogue right now. So something to keep in mind. And of course, to uh, bring us home, witness is always the most powerful combination. So words and actions uh, working together. If you say one thing and do another, you're actually placing obstacles against people being able to accept the gospel, which <clears throat> can be the true tragedy of hypocrisy and scandal in the church. So we want to get out of our own way, and the more our lives conform with our beliefs and mirror the love of Christ, the more powerfully people are going to be able to hear what we have to say to them. So living our ideals. Um, and then finally, I wanted to make a quick plug for the DSPT. Hey, come join us if you loved this talk, if you love thinking about these things, if you love nerding out with Father Michael and Father Justin. Um, you might just enjoy being a student at the DSPT. You can enroll for a single class, or you can get a degree. Or you can support a student who is going to the DSPT. So this is my quick self-serving uh, <laughs> self prom promotional end to the talk. Sorry? Question? <laughs> All right, yeah, question. We'll, we'll, take, uh, we'll take two minutes of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Huh? I'll tell you a few questions. Yeah, yeah, Al. Ingersoll? I'm not. I know the name, but I have not studied him yeah, extensively, no. Uh, yeah, you'll definitely have to okay. be more um, <laughs> specific. Yes. We're just driven by whatever, and we decide not to. Therefore, we're not responsible for anything. And which is at the, the counterpoint of the other atheists. However, they come down to the same thing. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you wish, which is Aristotle's. Yes, sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah the atheists just. Well, actually, it's true. So one of the things that really ticks Nietzsche off about Christianity is this whole uh, obsession with being responsible for my own actions. Um, he, he says, this is what you get when you posit something like the soul, which comes along with Christian morality. And he says, the soul is like a sickness. And this will be offensive to everybody, but this is what he said. Uh, a sickness like pregnancy is sickness. So... He has, he, he's ambiguous, he, he's, you know, he's willing to identify that um, our kind of turn to the psychological and giving ourselves personal depths can be very enriching, 
but it also uh, is, is troubling to him because we have a tendency to live in blame and guilt, and he hates that. So part of his big problem with Christianity is this obsession with compassion also means that we have a certain concern for what we do, which uh, is a burden for us. Okay, and certainly, um, uh, you ha- all your, basically all your other atheists uh, have a very attenuated sense of freedom. So Marx is a dialectical materialist, which basically means that history is going to go where it's going to go, regardless of what you do. So he doesn't necessarily deny individual freedom per se, but it's there lingering in the background that what you do really doesn't matter and uh, it's ultimately not going to make a difference to the world. And Freud, of course, is going to consider us to be kind of the function of our psychological factors and the way the world impinges on us. So yeah, all the atheists have a very um, limited, if non-existent, uh, conception of freedom. Okay, Michael, then we have Bill. That's a good question. The question is, is there a natural evil without sin? Uh, this, is, this is not something that Father Michael and I are going to be able to answer, because yeah. even the church fathers themselves are split on this. So what exactly the pre-lapsarian uh, natural reality would be like, what nature looks like before man sinned, uh, what exactly that would be like, and whether there were any kinds of, you know, uh, in other words, were all the animals vegetarians before we sinned, and then all of a sudden some of them became carnivorous? There are some f- church fathers who seem to say yes, and there are certainly some church fathers who say no, that's un- not likely. So it, it's, it's an open question even within Christian theology. Yeah, so, but, and, but the, the bottom line, though, is that the na- natural death uh, came about in the profundity of its death with the spiritual death, so, and that's what, what Christ is there to reverse, the, the moral evil that attenuates what is physical evil, especially if you think that um, uh, one of the punishments for sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death, and what St. Paul's talking about, not just natural death, but, but spiritual death there, so. And then, yeah, Bill, and then, yeah. When you talked about, you talked about target, uh, can you talk about another curriculum very briefly about Bruce Camus? Uh, briefly, no. <laughs> um, suffice it to say that Camus is an existentialist, uh, has a number of, of uh, elements in common with Sartre, and also feels uh, very, feels that element of absurdity. Uh, that life, and we could see maybe a little bit of Ecclesiastes going on in Camus here. But the idea that um, we just can't, um, the, the universe just doesn't work as it should, right? The, our, our reason says this is the way things should be if the, the world were, were just and fair. And we're constantly bumping up against the, the, the world not responding in that way. So there's a kind of absurdity uh, and a crisis of meaning in existence for Camus that's very much akin to what you'll find in Sartre with some important differences, obviously, but there, there are definitely peas in a pod. Yeah. So, kind of going back to her question, um, in the in the discussion of Freud, you said that he thought that religion had kind of gotten away of 
Yeah, and don't confuse psychological integration with. Ha I think we, when you say that, what you mean is happiness, some kind of, kind of flourishing. I didn't, I didn't no, he, yeah. Yeah. So the question is, is what is psychological integration, and you know, when happiness is not a possibility, what yeah. does it matter? Um, yeah, this is actually uh, something that my students uh, kind of butt against. You know, when we get to a certain point in Freud, is they realize Freud has been very good at defining mental illness and psychological disorder. He has not done really any work in defining what psychological wholeness is. So he does not have, I think, any kind of real definition of the positive versus the negative. So he obviously has an account of how, you know, superego, ego, and id end up conflicting with one another and there being tension, repression, et cetera. He's really good on that score. But yeah, what, what the sort of ultimate goal is seems to be just kind of eliminating um, the various kinds of neurosis and overcoming the behavior, um, a real s sense of flourishing and wholeness is more or less absent from Freud, at least according to my reading. Uh, sorry, what was, what was? Does the soul play into that? Well, the, I don't think there is a soul as such in Freud. So um, that's why the question of, you know, what's your real personal center in Freud is uh, an interesting one because there, you, we can't identify soul with the ego, but the ego seems to be kind of the best candidate of who you are as a conscious self, and yet we have the id that has, you know, these important, in other words, the id in many ways seems to be kind of pulling our strings, at least to some limited extent, but that's not really, uh, but that doesn't seem to be your real true self, at least in the whole, so it's, it's a real, I think, mystery to say, okay, who is the person, what is a person really for Freud? Uh, Freud gives us a lot of interesting material, but I don't think a definite answer to that. And we can't, in general, I mean, these were, of course, they're called masters of suspicion for a reason. Like when you go in with a suspicious mindset, you're, you're going to be better at critiquing something than you are about building a worldview that actually has something positive to say. Just in and part of it is that he is, he is a, um, a clinician, right? He's, um, he's actually looking at the psychological evidence and trying to put together psychological theories based on his uh, clinical practice. So, um, so in many ways, the, the fact that he hasn't necessarily given us a definition of wholeness makes sense according to his own methodology. So Question I, I in the back and then one, one uh, front. So, 
Yeah, are, are you asking is, this, is the particular historical circumstance come, lend to what they were, to, to their philosophies? Yeah, I think we talked about it last time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, yeah. Yeah, the, the way you could put it is that our, um, our journey of truth always begins where we're at here and now. So we never start from nowhere. Um, we always start with our particular perspective. But we don't have to stay in our pers particular perspective. Uh, this is something that the science of hermeneutics or interpretation is kind of constantly banging at, is that we can expand our horizon by getting somebody else's perspective, by you know moving and living a, a different kind of existence, getting different uh, input. Um, so we don't necessarily have to stay with our own perspective. Uh, we can't necessarily kind of transcend it willy-nilly, uh, but we don't have to stay there. So we can, I, I think, you know, um, our grasp of the truth is never going to necessarily be complete or omniscient, but we can uh, definitely, I think, approach objective truth. And we don't have to simply say, this is just my truth. Um, but to know that that's where we begin. We begin with what we've experienced. We begin with our circumstances, our concerns, and uh, basically the belief systems we've inherited. Of, yeah. And Marx and, and Nietzsche and Freud, the masters of suspicion, are really good at pointing that particular truth of our human existence out. So lots of good stuff in these thinkers. Yeah. And, but the goal then is always not to just stay in that context, but always be pushing forward, asking, you know, is this true? Is it just because of where I am, or is there something more out there to push it? So you, you got to go, you got to go beyond just your own historical or present moment circumstance. Yeah, that's uh, one job. Any um, atheists or atheistic thinkers, or scholars, so to speak, entertain the uh, existence of a, a, a spiritual level of spiritual existence? So ba basically, all, all the, are they all materialists? Is that what you're asking? So a, a non-materialist atheist. I'm having trouble thinking of one. Um, you might find, I'd have to think, you might find that maybe in ancient Greece. No, even they tended to be rather materialistic. Yeah, not, I can't think of any a famous atheist off the top of my head who has a kind of spiritualism. Um, and I, I, have to, I have to at least give it to them that there seems to be a kind of consistency there. Is it's really hard to deny the existence of God, um, and yet posit that there's still kind of spiritual realm. Uh, and what I'm getting at is, is this sort of thing, is people who say, oh, I believe in angels, but I don't believe in God. Um, that's a hard one, because if we take angels seriously, <laughs> they're created beings who are messengers. Angel means messenger. For someone, uh, it's hard to be a messenger for nobody. Um, and again, the at least from the Western perspective, the, the common foundation of, uh, of atheism, uh, at least beginning in the late modern period, uh, tends to be very close uh, ally 
a very close ally with materialism. So they tend to reject the whole thing wholesale. So even Sartre, who's an existentialist and doesn't actually go in for a lot of um, materialism uh, considered as such, doesn't really have um, any kind of understanding of spirituality other than our own consciousness. So they, they talk about, con like Sam Harris was one that I was, you know, when we see those, those videos that he, he's trying to get more than just, he, he doesn't want to be a classic materialist. So he's talking about reason and consciousness and, you know, elevating consciousness, but he's, it's not a real consistent, he doesn't, he doesn't have a consistent philosophy of the of immateriality, I would say, from a philosophical kind of thing. But I think he's doing it, he's trying to attempt because spirituality just, I think, in our culture is seen as a good, that mindfulness, and so you, these kind of, these euphemisms for more than materialism, right, is somehow good, so they want to integrate that into a atheistic viewpoint, but it's not really clear how it's coherent or holds together yet, and they're struggling with that, which I think is, I think is great, because it's, it's an entry point to talk about. I mean, we have this rich tradition, and so, yeah. A hundred percent, yeah, spiritual but not religious. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> No, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's well, and, and that, that might be cause for hope, though, because no, we, I, I think, think that at least gives us an in. That's um, right. Yeah. To even have somebody admitting that there's more to this life than what we see before us, I think, is, is a, a, a big starting point. There's a lot of common ground there. That's right, yeah. Last question. Um, so so, the, so the are Buddhist atheists? Is that the question? Okay. I don't know. Kind of agnostic in that way. I don't know, what would you say? My inclination would be to to, to say yes. Um, Buddhism could answer that description depending on your interpretation and which you know kind of flavor of Buddhism you're talking about. But yes, I, th I think that, that that could be a characterism, uh, characteristic of Buddhism. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated because there are lots and lots of differences in Buddhism. So, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a uh, uh, someone could, could even come back at you and say, well, it's not so much that Buddhists are atheists, it's that Buddhists are pantheists. It's kind of everything is divine, not that nothing's divine. So that would be kind of, that just is my way of highlighting that it's a, it's a complicated yes, but still I would be inclined to say yes, I'd agree with you. It, it could be, and I, even like at our graduate theological union, you, you meet folks who identify as Buddhists, but when you get down to it, they're almost kind of uh, uh, a mix of Christianity as well, right? So it's kind of, a, Buddhism has a kind of eclectic, eclectic nature by its, its nature in terms of philosophy that allows for lots of different things to kind of jump in there. <laughs> and so it's, it's always hard to, to find. It's kind of like in general Christianity and Protestantism, unless there's a, a definition of a different um, doctrine or, or like Lutheranism, it's hard to get everyone on the same page there <laughs> to really make a truth claim about the entirety of it. So. Yeah, and although it's a question best left probably to, to, to Buddhists, yeah, so um, Buddhist. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I myself know any, well, I don't know many Buddhists at all, period, but the, the, the few that I've encountered, I don't think I, any of them would be inclined to characterize themselves as atheists. 
So that's kind of another piece of the puzzle too. Again, not not to not to uh, disagree with what you've said, but just to complicate the issue. So. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone. This has been delightful. Um, and next week is in Tuesday night. RCIA, so the, uh, the, the kind of jumping off point for the great adventure of exploring more about uh, our Catholic faith. So you're certainly all welcome to, to, to come back for those who are on the journey or uh, know folks that are on the journey. Uh, come on back at 7 o'clock uh, Tuesday night. So God bless you all. <laughs>